Hello, welcome to Controversies in Church History. This is Derek Taylor. Hello, everyone. I know you haven't heard from me in a long time. It's been a long semester. It was very busy. And so in lieu of, before the end of the year, doing another episode, I thought I'd do something that I have seen other podcasters, YouTubers do, which is do a little year-end book review for you. So I've read a bunch of books this year. Uh, these are the ones basically that I have finished. If this is not necessarily connected with controversies in church history, if you're listening to this, uh, I do have a sub stack and I'm going to post this on there. It's kind of a, a mixed mishmash of things. I also have a podcast on um, the history of the Catholic Church, but I'm kind of lumping all this together because this is just my reading for this year. Some of it you'll see was based on stuff I've written, which I'll talk about. Um, and or stuff that I've done for my classes. So let's give you some good books. I've read some books, some of these books I, you know, assigned for my classes because I wanted to read them myself, as you'll see. And so just a little book rear in quick rear in book review for you. There will be, by the way, um, after the before the end of the year, after the Christmas holiday, Christmas Day, uh, sometime next week, another uh, update episode let you know what's happening with the podcast, what we'll be doing going forward. So be on the lookout for that. And so um in no particular order here are the books the best books uh in some ways maybe the only books not all the only books but i've started a bunch of books i have not finished yet and some i don't intend to finish but um these are the best and most interesting for this year and the first one i'm going to talk about briefly uh is a biography i uh, was published back in 2008 in french um uh by um um uh, Yves Chiron is a French scholar of Paul, Pope Paul VI, called the Divided Pope. And if you don't know who he is, Yves Chiron is a French scholar. Uh, he's a, a Catholic traditionalist, actually, favor of the old liturgy. And he's um, published, uh, well, a book was published, uh, translated of his a biography of Annibal Bonini, who was the sort of main architect of the creation of the new Catholic liturgy that was uh, promulgated in 1969. And uh, he's also author of a very recent history, it hasn't been translated into English yet, on the history of the French uh, Catholic traditionalist movement, uh, which I want to read. Uh, I'd like to read in the original language if I have time. But uh any event, he wrote this biography. I actually, I read it. Um, Peter Kwasniewski, who is, I think I'm pronouncing his name, apologizes if I butcher, I butcher that. But uh, he asked me to, to write a review of this, and I sort of sent one to... Uh, Crisis Magazine, which actually published earlier this year. So if you want to go to Crisis Magazine, read my full review of it or full more details on it. Um, I believe it's called the Torn Mantle of Paul VI because it's a, it's a, it's a good by. By the way, it's excellent. Uh, that's the short version. Giron is a fine scholar, has a very excellent eye for detail. There is actually a, an anecdote in that in this biography. Um, which he recounts a French ambassador's first impression of Giovanni Montini. And you should read it just for that, just for that detail he picked up because it's a really fascinating uh, impression he gives of a younger um, Giovanni Montini, the future Paul VI. And a very different biography, by the way, if you're familiar, the other major one in English is by Peter Hebblethwaite. Hebblethwaite's an Englishman, former Jesuit, uh, also, as far as I can tell, a theological uh, liberal. Uh, the title of his biography was uh, Pope Paul the Paul the Sixth, the first modern pope. So you can kind of guess where that one went in terms of its evaluation of him. Yves Chiron, despite being a traditionalist, by the way, is a very, very fine, very objective scholar. He's very sympathetic personally to Paul the Sixth, 
And so you'll get that from this. So I highly recommend that one. Uh, it's the first one we read. And again, you can want more details. You can go read uh, my article in Crisis. The second one uh, is a book called Frontline Ukraine, Crisis in the Borderland by Richard Sakwa. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And as you know, of course, this uh, with the uh, war in uh, the Ukraine starting this year, like a lot of you have been trying to read up on it. I've read some other books about the Ukraine or about Ukraine. I guess they changed that. It's Ukraine. And um, Sakwa is a is a Polish man by birth, but he works in in Britain. Uh, he is the uh, he's an emeritus professor of politics at the University of Kent, and he gives a a background, some historical background, and the history of Ukraine from its you know from its independence in 1991 up till 2014. It's published in 2015, by the way. Um, the uh, Sharon's book was published this year, but this one, um, 2015. The year after the so-called Euromadan revolution of 2014 kicked out a drove out of office a friendly uh, Viktor Yanukovych who was sort of friendly to Russia and installed a different government. And um, as you know, there's a big debate about this. Um, some people basically two. There's more than two sides, but the bigger picture is most people, United States, you know, uh, foreign policy establishment media. Um, that, you know, this was a totally unprovoked war that, um, Vladimir Putin's the sort of moral equivalent of, um, of Adolf Hitler, which it is, by the way, an aggressive and illegal war. I don't think anyone with a brain would deny that, but Sakwa is arguing the opposite, that the, the breakdown of relationships in Ukraine is actually due to the United States and to its Atlantic allies in Europe. Um, and their expansionist policies, particularly with regards to NATO. You've probably heard this if you've listened to, um, and God, I can't remember the man's name. <laughs> I've let all these uh, uh, brain will come back to me. I've died, but he's the major, um, Mearsheimer, John Mearsheimer, who's the one that has this thesis. But basically that the United States expanding NATO right up to Russia's borders provoked it uh, into this sort of thing. And he lays the blame at them. And he's lays the blame partly because we know now the United States government was behind, well, support, well, was behind. They supported the, uh, the, the overthrow of the Yanukovych government in 2014. And uh, what I can tell from reading the book, um, Sakwa is a liberal sort of internationalist type. And um, he portrays that um, that uh, 2014 revolution as being, you know, both sponsored by the Americans but also uh, one that was intended to create a Western-style liberal democracy, uh, rejection of the sort of, you know, um, um, oligarchism that tends to be dominate Ukraine, uh, oligarchs still today dominate Ukraine, uh, and reject that in favor of, you know, better government. Really, it was a re revolution against corruption, which is rife, obviously, in Ukraine, uh, but also one that was hijacked by far-right elements in Ukraine. And... Um, Again, if you are willing to think outside the dominant narrative and see Russia as a, you know, uh, again, I don't know, I mean, use for Russia, it's a corrupt state, it's a, you know, oligarchy, it's a autocracy or whatever, but still being as a rational actor, it's acting, acting in, its, in its own interest rather than being ruled by a, a, a bloodthirsty, crazy person, which is how Putin's depicted in the, the media, it's a good introduction. Um, he comes out against all that. He doesn't think Putin's around. He doesn't think Putin's a good guy. He's not saying yay for all the interference that you know Russia 
And Russia doesn't have a right to go bully its neighbors. <laughs> um, they do it all the time, have done it historically. But um, but here you can see the bigger, uh, he makes this, I think, a, a fairly strong claim. He made, a, I, I, again, I, that's my position. This is mostly an American-created um, event. But um, my major critique of the book, if there is one, I, I think Sakwa tends to impose too much unity on what the Ukrainian people as a whole supposedly want. I mean, he's his narrative is that they wanted Western liberal democracy. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I'm not so sure, you know, he depicts the far right elements as being kind of fringe elements. And in a sense, they are. If you, we say far right, we should be clear about this, by the way. Sometimes you'll see in the media, you know, the uh, reports about the so-called Azov Battalion, which, you know, they'll wear, you know, Nazi insignias and stuff like this. If you don't know the background, this will explain some of this. But during World War II, the Nazis came in and helped the, the Ukrainians push out the Soviets. That's why there's a lot of fond memories about this, especially in Western Ukraine. Um, I don't think there are any actual Nazis, to be honest with you, in Ukraine. There are people, even in government, by the way, you could call legitimately fascists. Um, their main thing is they hate Russia and they want to get rid of Russians from their country. That's the main thing. And uh, there's no doubt about that. That part's true, whatever you think of it. Um, my criticism is that he seems to think that, you know, a lot of, I, you know, most all the, the Ukrainians, at least in the Western Europe, Western part of Ukraine, which is more, you know, close to Europe in terms of its orientation is somehow jonesing for, you know, the EU and jonesing for a big social democratic state. And I'm not so sure about that. I have lots of, I do know Ukrainians who want that. They're in the United States, they admire it, but I think there's a lot more division than there is. I think, I think it's hard to do that because it's not really a unified country very much for a lot of reasons. But anyway, good introduction to, uh, to the to the uh, topic if you're looking for one. So that's uh, Frontline Ukraine, the second one. Third book, uh, Shift to Fiction here, is a novel by uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, uh, Clara and the Sun, a novel, which if you don't know who uh, Ishiguro is, he is a, he is a Nobel Prize winner. Um, he is, I believe, uh, he's ethnically, ethnically Japanese, I think British by birth. If memory serves, the dull memory, yeah, I think he's a Christian of some sort. So maybe relevant to this, maybe not. But uh, the novel published this past year, I think it's 2022 or maybe 2021. I don't have the, on my notes, but um, the tale of a, you know, I guess you'd call it a robot or an android, I guess a robot, more like it, uh, named Clara, who is chosen by a young girl named Josie to be her companion. And uh, Josie in in this story uh, suffers from a mysterious illness, and she's chosen to be a companion for reasons for for several reasons, but it'll come clear about the book. There are other reasons for this. And um, the action of the story seems to take place in a near future in which human beings are fairly openly genetically modified, like they're they like from birth, they're I guess before birth, I guess. And that those who don't measure up intellectually are sort of put on a different career track. Uh, this is the case. She has a, there's a character who's kind of her friend, boyfriend. It's kind of ambiguous in the story named Rick. He's one of these people who wasn't genetically modified. So he's on a different track with the implication, I guess, that rich people can genetically modify their children to make them more successful, that sort of thing. So this is the kind of background for this. And so it's obviously exploring the theme of what it means to be human. And, you know, can these, you know, can our machines, whatever AI, I guess, you know, approximate human nature? 
it's pretty good at bringing that stuff to the fore. The story itself, I have to say, I didn't find exactly riveting. Again, I was busy this year with a lot of work, especially this semester. I picked up and picked it back down when I could. And um, I don't think Ishiguro has a whole lot to say that's all that earth-shattering about these themes, to be honest with you. But he doesn't get onto a soapbox. There's none of that. So it's a relatively well-told story. Uh, but there are two main things about the book and why you should read this. And uh, I did enjoy it. Uh, one is that there is a character twist uh, regarding Clara, which is really interesting. And probably if they, one big idea he has in the book, and you'll see this, by the way, I'll give you a hint. It's connected to the title. I think it's about midway through the book. You finally get it. You're like, oh, that's what that was. Really interesting and, and thoughtful. The second thing is, again, like I said, I picked up the book wasn't compelling as a read. But the writing is amazing. I had never read one of Ishiguro's novels before. And it's hard to explain, but his writing is so limpid, so crystal clear. It sort of sits in your mind so easily. Just to give you an example, again, I didn't think the story itself like if you you know separate, I tend to separate you know novelists or you know whatever writers into like people who are good writers uh, or people who are good storytellers. A storyteller is not the same thing as being a good writer. You can be a good storyteller and your writing is not you know anything special. You can be a great writer but not be you know be able to you know tell a story in an impelling way. He's a better writer than he is a, a storyteller. But his writing, I, I've never read writing like this because I mentioned I put the book down and come back to it uncanny that every single time I went back to it, even if I picked it, you know, I hadn't read it for like a week. As soon as I looked at the page and looked at his writing, I could remember exactly where I was in the story because that writing was so clear. It was just beautiful. And so you should read it just for that. If nothing else, I'll have to read another one of his novels. Just the writing's amazing. So I don't know. Nobel prize literature seems like a, a political award. Doesn't mean much anymore, but I think they got it right. This guy is really great. So uh, recommend uh, Clara and the Sun. Next one is a uh, is a work um, here in the slide. You should watch them. By the way, I'm recording this uh, video on YouTube. I have images of the uh, um, the covers of these books. This one is uh, Sunjata, an epic of old Mali by uh, D.T. Niane. I think they pronounce his name. And the epic of Sunjata is actually an oral tale. Or a poem, basically, a big poem about the first emperor of the West African Empire of Mali, who most scholars believe was is a historical person. He uh, lived in like 12, reigned, I think, from the 1230s to the 1250s, like 1233 to 1255, I think, in the 13th century in Western Africa. And it's sometimes referred to the Epic of Mali as a as the West African Iliad, although it's a little different um, because in this, there's no standard edition of this work. They're different. You can buy different tellings of this because uh, in West Africa are these people called uh, griots, the poets who go around telling different versions, slightly different versions of the story of, of Sunjata. And they still retell their tale to this day. And Itiniane is one of the people who heard this. And so it's a retelling of a, it's very much an oral tale. It's not like the Iliad and the Odyssey, which were written down and put in canonical form by the, by the Athenian Greeks in the fifth century BC. And so it's really uh, neat. I assigned this uh, for my world history class this past semester. I don't know. It was an online class. I didn't get a sense of how the kids liked it, but I thought it was really fun. So, uh, it does have a classic feel to it. It is a um, lively tale in this basic story. Just to you know, let you know is that Sunjata is this 
uh, son of uh, the king of Mali, who, by the way, again, has many wives. They practice um, polygamy in these in this kingdom, uh, who is a. Uh, who gets a prophecy and there's a lot about fate in the, in this work, apparently the animists of Western Africa, the animist believers uh, in that religious system take fate really seriously. That he is destined to become the King of Mali. Uh, and yet when he's about 10 years old, he's driven, him and his mother are driven into exile. Once the King dies, one of his uh, other, other King's wives drives him out. And so he has to go through all his experiences and build himself up as a, a warrior comes back as an adult to um, to uh, take back his kingdom from the ruler who has uh, usurped it. <laughs> and it's great because the whole thing is filled with adventure, but also magic. The uh, the usurper who's usurped his kingdom is actually a sorcerer. <laughs> in one of the dramatic scenes in the in the book, he's out in, in battle, Sunjad is with this guy, and all of a sudden the, his foe is losing the battle, he just disappears. <laughs> so there's some neat stuff in it. And, uh, but also, and this is the reason I gave it to my students, it's a fascinating look into the world of Africa, uh, especially Western Africa, if you don't know a lot about it, because in this you have, and I think Sunjata is, my brain is uh, mush, was a Muslim, but most of the kingdom isn't. And so there's this real fascinating interplay between the animist beliefs of the people in West Africa and Islam. And so it gives you a very different look at an Islamic world probably most people aren't familiar with. So that's interesting in that uh, that regard. But as I've gotten older, I've gotten more and more interested in traditional cultures, traditional societies, as I've become more traditional, I guess, as a, as a Catholic. And so this has a very classic sort of feel. It gives you an, a, a wonderful example of what story, the power of storytelling in a traditional society and what it means to them. So um, again, good little read. It's only like 86 pages in the edition uh, that I had. So, um, so yeah, check it out. Uh, highly recommended. And the next one, uh, a little more dense and big, uh, is a book called Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts, 12 Journeys into the Medieval World by Christopher de Hamel. Hamel's a librarian, uh, as a fellow of Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, and the librarian of the Parker Library there. And so he deals with manuscripts, really old, beautiful manuscripts. And so there's about medieval manuscripts, particularly illuminated ones with lots of images, but also, you know, um, you know, illuminated in terms of, you know, script and writing in the Middle Ages. And so in the book, he basically goes, details his travels around Europe, discovering the provenance, the history and the artistic heritage of 12 of these really amazing middle illuminated manuscripts. Um you know, um, if you're a fan of, if you like, you know, detective stories or sleuthing, sleuthing stories about, you know, famous artifacts, you'll love this. Um, or if you like, if you, if you like novels like Name of the Rose, it's a little bit, this is a little bit up your alley that way. But um, it's great partly because Dehamel clearly, clearly loves this stuff, he loves these manuscripts, you know, where they came from. You know how they were made. Every detail goes into the deep, deep details. All these. The best thing about it, of course, is this book. If you can't see it here, it has. Um, it's a big, thick book, and probably only a, a publishing house like Penguin can get away with this. But uh, big, beautiful pictures of the texts, uh, the moving manuscripts, and others, other images, and um, goes into loving detail about how some of these manuscripts came into the possession of the libraries that house them. Um, one of them, for example, has to do with World War II and uh, and uh, and you know the Nazis, if memory serves, during World War II, stuff like that. So there's all those, those sorts of things in this book. And this book I read, you know, for pleasure, so it was good for me in that regard. 
And, you know, and there's familiar stuff, by the way, probably even if you don't like medieval manuscripts, you've heard of the Book of Kells, the gospel book from, uh, you know, was it 19th century Ireland? But there are other uh, wonderful books as well, Your other treasures of our medieval heritage that you can learn about in this book. So again, fun work, highly recommended, um, and uh, not that expensive for a big book like that either. Next one is a book. Uh, it's actually not really a book. It's actually three lectures. It's only about 100 pages or so long. And um, it is called Liturgical Latin, uh, Its Origins and Character by Christine Mormon. I don't know who she is. She was a professor uh, at the uh, Catholic University of Ny uh, it's called Nijmegen. Nijmegen. I can't pronounce the the Dutch, but uh, Nijmegen. 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 I'm butchering it. But uh, at the University of Amsterdam in uh, in the Netherlands, uh, which she published gave in 1957, uh, I believe at the Catholic University of America, published by CUA Press. And it is a wonderful introduction to the history, but also the study and the nature of liturgical Latin, like church's, you know, sacred tongue, uh, basically up until the 1960s. And um, in it, she discusses why, you know, she thinks that a liturgical language must be, quote unquote, hieratic. That is to say, it has to be a specialized language for worship. That is, it can't be everyday normal speech. It has to be something outside the everyday also talks in, in uh, and that's the first, like second lectures on um, the history of it, how Latin, how Latin came to be adopted. And we don't have a lot of, not to spoil it for you, a lot of good records before the fourth century when the church gets its freedom. But she talks about some fascinating things, um, fascinating um, elements that get into things like the Roman canon, which is the oldest Eucharistic prayer in the Latin tradition, Western tradition. Which you probably never hear uh, if you go to the new the new liturgy. They don't use it very often, but um, it is a uh, fascinating fascinating look at the history, as well as the uh, a fine defense of the idea of language as being more than mere communication of information. It's one thing, the first thing she talks about in the the uh, introduction to the published version of this is that there are some people who think that you know language is just for that, and certainly you know settings there are for that, but not for worship. It has to be more than just you know. Especially if you're, you know, if you're worshiping an infinite, eternal, you know, perfect God, He doesn't need any information from you. <laughs> so um, it's a good, it's good, good read, fairly short. You can find it, by the way, for free. Uh, you can download it as a PDF from the Internet Archive, so it's available there. It's out of print; has been so for a long time. But uh, this is again the more Catholic side of this. But uh, if you uh, into that sort of thing, it's very interesting. Highly recommend. The next book was very fascinating. I wanted to read this for a long time. And so uh, I assigned it for my world history course. And this is the, uh, if you're not looking at the uh, the YouTube version of this, the narrative of Cabeza de Vaca um, by Alvar Nunez, Cabeza de Vaca. Uh, was edited and translated by uh, Rolena Adorno, Rolena Adorno and Patrick Charles Pouts, some University of Nebraska, Nebraska Press, I think 1999 or so. And uh, if you don't know the story of Cabeza de Vaca, de Vaca, you're in for a treat. You should definitely read this. Cabeza de Vaca was a conquistador. Uh, he was someone who went on a an expedition. Uh, I'm going to butcher this name uh, with a guy named Navraiz. Navraiz? <laughs> Sorry. Um, Navraiz in 1528. And uh, this is, of course, after the conquest of Mexico by uh, Cortez. 
about several years before Pizarro conquers the Incas. And Navris, if I'm not pronouncing his name correctly, wanted to explore what they called Florida or Florida, which at the time they weren't quite sure they knew there was a peninsula, what we call today Florida. But at the time, they weren't sure. They thought it was still part of almost like part of northeastern Mexico. So they're looking for the northeastern coast of Mexico. And they left from from Cuba, but they got blown off course by a storm and landed in what is today my hometown of Tampa Bay, of Tampa, Florida, and went inland trying to contact Indians. They ran into Indians who were hostile. They ran out of supplies. They eventually split up. Um, Navriz uh, went with his troops on land. And um, Cabeza de Vaca, uh, one of his his you know people on the ride, went on small made small makeshift rafts and went up along the coast. And by the time they got to they they, they go way up the Florida coast, they get to present day Texas effectively. By the time they get there, almost everybody's died on the expedition except for four people, including Cabeza de Vaca. And they spend the next seven eight years either as sometimes captives of the natives there, or other sometimes as their their guests wandering around northern Mexico and trying to get out and get their way back uh, to um, to <laughs> to New Spain or to Mexico, Tenochtitlan, uh, Mexico City, modern Mexico City. And, and so they're gone for almost 10 years. They only finally show up back in Spanish territory in 1537, make it back to Mexico City in 1537, those four men. Um, and uh, an amazing story in which the first you have the first descriptions uh, by a European of you know large parts of North America, uh, the Florida coast they'd been found by Ponce de Leon in 1513, but uh, of the Northwest coast of uh, parts of you know what be Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana today, of Indians in those areas, of uh, plants and animal life, uh, the first description by Europeans of American bison, stuff like this, and. Um, and uh, an amazing narrative. And I give it to my students partly because it's about world history. And of course we cover the Spanish conquest of the Americas. And again, you usually get a fairly, I think it's safe to say politicized version of this uh, about how this went about. And and again, some of that's actually true and you know, conquest is usually a brutal thing, but the narrative of Cabeza de Vaca is of course very different because he spends his time for many years. And by the way, when I say he spends his time among these natives, he their clothes you know, get basically, they 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 get they get destroyed over time they spend most of their time he says amongst these people almost completely naked for like years on end uh living like the natives do and so uh, it's this total reversal of what your image is of the conquest where he, he's at certain points at the mercy of these people other points he's saved by them other points by the way they save them when this is one of the great this is one of these this is why this is of it's like a great adventure story which has this immense anthropological interest because at one point in the story uh, several points these these indians especially the ones that come into texas they they think these these europeans are healers so they ask them to heal them and so these these you know these are committed uh, is a believing catholic and so he's horrified by this idea they're going to do some sort of witchcraft or something so they, they go around making the sign of cross the cross over the people and, and saying you know hail marys and stuff uh these people get healed uh they perform faith healings even though they're not they don't really, they don't really believe in that stuff and so it's a it's an amazing amazing tale relatively short um it's not too uh, expensive it's available in a, in a um, paperback form you can find this also you can rent it you can't download it from the internet archive you know what that is sort of online library some of these you can as well but uh, but an amazing amazing 
um, tale and a lot of very interesting in terms of the history, both of the Americas, you know, Catholicism, but also exploration. Um, and just just a, just an amazing adventure story in some ways. So again, wonderful book, a little different uh, subject here for you. So I highly recommend that one for you. Next up, and this is a book I actually, um, I think uh, vaguely years ago I had heard of. Oh, sorry, moving things around here. And uh, this is Arthur Custler's novel, Darkness at Noon. And I assigned this book for my Western Civ course, the second half of my Western Civ course. I think that's the last time I'll be teaching it. Um, and so I assigned this book. And um, if you don't know, uh, Darkness at Noon is a fictionalized account, basically, of this uh, communist official who gets arrested for crimes he didn't commit in Stalin's Russia. It never says that in the book, but it's clearly reference it. And who is uh, uh, interrogated and, and forced to sort of confess the crimes he didn't commit and then is executed. And um, it's amazing, really. I vaguely heard of it. It was for one, once upon a time, one of the great fetid books of, of the 20th century. It's fallen out of just fallen out of favor for a variety of reasons. I'm not really sure. One reason I'm sure why I'll get in a second, but um, written by Arthur Kussler. Kussler, who was a Jewish author and journalist, who was born in Vienna. He's a young man, he look for his, you know, whatever meaning in life, goes off to Israel, uh, goes to a kibbutz, doesn't like it there, eventually becomes a communist and a journalist and writes, uh, you know, journalism for, for communists, uh, I guess, communist newspapers and uh, writes propaganda uh, for the communist international, the, the international communist organization that uh, the Soviets uh, set up to spread communism in the 1920s and 30s. And he actually went to Spain to cover the the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s and the Republican side, the, the communist side, effectively, in the war and um, got captured by the nationalists, spent six months in prison for his troubles. However, uh, he had a, a falling out with communism. He began to lose his faith during the Stalinist show trials of the late 1930s when you had people being put on uh, trial, um, you know, old line communists who had been, you know, stalwarts during the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 and the first few years of the revolution, being forced to confess to or in confessing to crimes they clearly had not committed and then being executed for it by Stalin's government. And this led to his disillusionment with communism. That's kind of what the book is about. Um, it takes place, um, uh, surrounds a, a character named Nikolai uh, Rubashov, who gets a raise an old communist. He gets arrested for crimes he didn't commit. And the whole thing is really, it's fascinating because it takes place just mostly in like prison cells. There are flashbacks to earlier parts of his life and the things he's done. It's kind of amazing because it's very psychological because one of the things that, you know, Kustler wanted to understand is why these people, he admired some of these people, right? Uh, one of them in particular, the edition, you, if you see this, this is the, there's a new edition where there's, there's um, an earlier edition of the book that was discovered. Um, the original, I guess, original uh, German edition of it. He, the, the translations that have been used before were written in English, but written by a girlfriend of his. Um, but it's a, a fictionalized attempt to understand why someone, and the per person I was thinking of was a guy named Nikolai Bukhadin, who was a hero of Kustler's, who was one of these people who went through these show trials and confessed to crimes he didn't commit. It's a it's a way of understanding why someone would do that. And it's a brilliant exposition, I must say. 
uh, masterful, masterful psychological portrayal of these communists who, again, if you're reading this, you probably don't like communism. You probably kind of hate it. And I admit I, I, I'm opposed to communism as well. But it's a powerful depiction of someone who is a, you know, this is the thing about these communists. They, they're idealists. That's why they commit all these horrible crimes. They have this idea that this this ideal is so important. Anything, you know, the ends justifies the means. But somebody that gets into the novel, um, Cussler is going working through all this and clearly like coming to the showing how he came to the conclusion that this was all, you know, that he, he this was a mistake. How it got this way, right? How did the Great Revolution that was supposed to bring equality and justice bring death and uh, oppression? And uh, I, I was very surprised. I didn't. It's amazing. It's a masterpiece. And if you're wondering, by the way, why, you know, one obvious reason is that, you know, anti-communism is not a big thing in the intellectual and literary world because uh, they kind of like communism. But um, well, some of them do anyway. Uh, but also the reason is he had a an interesting personal life. I'll leave it at that. You can go Google it. Uh, that's maybe one of the reasons why he's uh, he's kind of kind of memory hole. But it is an amazing book. I highly recommend it. Um, great novel, definitely should be on your bookshelf and your your bucket list to read. So there you go, Darkness at Noon by Arthur Cussler. Next, uh, next couple here are actually two pamphlets, and I'm not going to go over these in too much detail because I actually did a short podcast about uh, their author, a guy named Hugh Ross Williamson, back in the back in the summer. A uh, little Catholic Live series where I, you know, do little mini biographies of of figures from Catholic history. Hugh Ross Williamson was a uh, was actually born a Protestant, a um, Presbyterian, son of a Presbyterian minister, if memory serves, Reformed minister. Became an Anglican, then became an Anglican priest, was a clergyman, and then uh, left to become a Catholic in the 1950s. All the while working in the 1950s as a screenwriter and a playwright. And so for the BBC, so in fast, the guy had a fascinating life, fascinating career. And uh, he's important. The reason why you read these, these two are called The Great Betrayal and The Modern Mass. Um, modern Mass is called The Modern Mass, a reversion of the reforms of Cranmer. And these pamphlets were, I think it's Great Betrayal was 1969 and The Modern Mass is 1973. And uh, Hugh Ross Williamson is one of the sort of founding members of a traditionalist, Catholic traditionalist movement in England to save the the old Latin Mass, and both of these books are about what he thinks the betrayal of the of of the Mass was in these reforms, and he's one of the first people to articulate some of the criticisms you'll hear to this day about the the new Mass, and you'll get them the Great Betrayal especially is more of a pamphlet, it's more of a polemic, um, but it, they're both fairly. He's an intelligent and learned guy. The reversion of the modern Mass is actually the more, if you want a more substantive critique, they're both fairly short, like thirty pages or so. Uh, you can find them from uh, uh, find uh, in these books. Uh, again, we'll go into this too much detail. I talked about this already uh, on that podcast. You can find both of these, however, if you're interested in this sort of thing. Again, you can can't download them, but you can rent them from the Internet Archive. So lots of stuff on there if you want to find it. But the Great Betrayal and the uh, Reversion of the Reforms and the Modern Mass by Hugh Ross Williamson. There is a uh, someone has republished both of these as a book if you want to buy it. But uh, very good stuff. If you want to know more about early criticisms about the changes in the mass that were made in the 1960s. Second to last book here is one, again, took me most of the year to get through. Uh, I wish I'd been able to read it in one, you know, more continuous setting. Um, but this is a, um, a modern 
uh, uh, modern uh, alliterative verse translation of what's sometimes called the vision of Pierce Plow. This is Pierce Plowman, Pierce Plowman um, by William Langland, um, translated by E. Tabit Donaldson. So, um, and that's the edition. And um, it's a sort of compilation of the, I guess, the three different texts. Um, there are actually three different versions of this that come down from the Middle Ages. If you don't know, the vision appears the plowman is a medieval dream poem. This happens sometimes in medieval poetry where it, in an allegorical setting, the, the narrator of the, of the poem will fall into a steep sleep and go through these allegorical visions and stuff like this. And this is what this is, is a series of visions. Um, most scholars written, think written by a layman named William Langland sometime in late 14th century England, originally written in medieval, Middle English. This one's a translation. And it's an allegorical depiction of uh, the church at the time. And the main character goes, you know, across the country, you know, and then falls asleep and dreams and gets up and falls asleep and dreams, then dreams and within a dream and it goes all this other stuff. It's kind of weird. Um, and and um, seeking how to live a good Christian life in what seems like a corrupt world. It's very critical is Piers the Plowman of the worldliness and the um, the corruption in the church, especially of the clergy. And um, it poses as a sort of alternative to the, you know, the um, the corruption of the church, this figure called Piers the Plowman, kind of like an everyman who's a stand-in for, for Christ. And so he goes around searching for Piers the Plowman, not just Piers the Plowman, but how to find, you know, these allegorical virtues that he talks about and everything in the work. And it can be kind of hard going at times, but it's really fascinating for a couple of reasons. And one is that he is, um, he's highly critical of the institutional church, but he's for the most part fairly conservative and orthodox. This isn't, you know, this isn't some medieval heretic. This isn't necessarily, um, this isn't, you know, this isn't a proto-Luther, but it is very critical. And there are some points where he disagrees with the, with that contemporary church in his day, and um, one of the things he actually talks about explicitly toward the end of this poem is that he opposes the idea that the unbaptized automatically go to hell, uh, which was the current under understanding at the time in the Middle Ages. Uh, on the other hand, he's very it's a very much in a you know concern with orthodoxy and things like this. This is one of the reasons I wanted to read it was we're going through a period today where there's a lot of corruption in the church and the hierarchy, uh, a seeming abandonment of the church's teaching on a lot of things. And so someone who you know was critical but didn't abandon the church was interesting to me, but also because it's kind of uh, just because of what it says about, you know, um, uh, how Christianity gets, how the Catholic faith gets embodied in a culture like this. The um, historian Christopher Dawson said years ago at the end of his lectures, his Gifford lecture, which he published as um, uh, Christianity and the Rise of Western uh, Western Culture, talked about this being an evidence of how how deeply, Piers the Plowman, the poem, how deeply the Christian faith had penetrated into the life of ordinary people in late in Middle Ages, that they could articulate something like this in a vernacular language that was, you know, meant as a corrective um, to the sort of uh, failures of the institutional church. And so there was, there was something neat about it, but it's not, you know, it didn't go the way of the Reformation. And um, I, this is, a, of all the ones that I've read here, I kind of want to reread just to understand it better because it is kind of distant, but it's also fascinating the way things he says 
And, and you know, I won't, I won't ruin the ending for you, but it's fascinating that what it has to do with ideas of pilgrimage and stuff like that. So interesting read if you're ready for it. A challenge, but do recommend it. Piers the Plowman. And then finally, uh, last one. Um, this is the first one I read this year, I think. I got finished anyway. And this is a book published back in 2020 called The Hard Hat Riot. Uh, Nixon, New York City, and the Dawn of the White Working Class Revolution by David Paul Kuhn. David Paul Kuhn is a writer and journalist. I believe he was for CBS for a while. Uh, from, he lives in New York City. And he wrote this very, very dramatic, but meticulously detailed, particularly researched count, re meticulously researched account of the so-called Hard Hat Riot of 1970. And I don't have the dates in my brain. I think it was around 4th of July. But um, what happened was you had, this is, the, of course, the height of the Vietnam War protests. And in the middle of downtown New York City, you had um, you had um, the student protests going on, I think, near City Hall, I can't recall. But, um, and they were, you know, rumor, I guess rumors went around that, uh, you know, that they've been doing this for a couple of days. And these hard hats, these construction workers in the city working on various things were upset that apparently they were, you know, doing things like setting, stomping on the U S flag. I mean, maybe setting one on fire. And so a bunch of construction workers um, left their jobs, walked off their jobs, went downtown and beat the living piss out of these students in 19. And by the way, I'm laughing at it. You shouldn't go beat the piss out of people, but it's again, he chose this for a reason. First of all, I'd never heard of it, which is fascinating. But the second reason is that it's it's a, a sort of counter narrative to the you know 1960s mythology of all oh, the, the great students. If you don't know anything about the student riots, there's a lot of tension uh, between student protesters and police in the 1960s, which has to do with class, because most of the police are you know from working class neighborhoods, ethnic families, Irish, and so forth. A lot of these students are upper middle class, very wealthy, and he uses this as sort of a, a a symbol or a synecdoche for the collapse of the old FDR uh, coalition, the the coming of the new the new Democrats, right? If you know what I'm talking about here, the um, he the first part of the book, uh, I think the majority of the book actually, to the end, uh, second maybe last third of it, is setting up the background for this, talking about politics in New York City, which is fascinating. I didn't know a lot about it, but also national politics of what's going on at the 1968 National Convention in in, uh, in Chicago, excuse me, uh, but essentially the breakup of that. I mean, the old, the old, if you don't know the old FDR coalition, it's, you know, blacks in the South, but it's blacks, work, white working class people in the South, you know, labor union, stuff like that. And what happens from the 1960s up to today is like that gets repudiated because for many reasons. And effectively what he's he's complaining about is, um, the party embracing Democrats' uh, race at the expense of class and shunting aside these uh, working class people and pushing them into the arms of Richard Nixon, which they did uh, later on Ronald Reagan, so-called Reagan Democrats. And so it's a, a fascinating book, uh, generally well received. There were a couple of people, who, a lot of people who criticized there, people who who criticized his criticism of what essentially is identity politics. But uh, as an historian myself, and this is way outside of my area, so take that for what it's worth. Uh, that was really good. It's well done, popular history, well researched. The account of the actual riots, fascinating them itself, really well done. Um, but the whole thing was informative. And uh, if you're interested in what's going on in the present moment, it's a pretty good uh, primer and background for some of it, uh, especially of um, 
uh, of this event I, again i'd never heard of and so very interesting for that regard and so that is it those are it's about the 10 or 12 books i've read this year i hope that was uh, helpful for you guys we got something out of it and uh yeah so and to one and all to all and sundry um you know how you got everyone out listening out there watching this on youtube have a great and wonderful and blessed merry christmas with your families and friends and uh rejoice and be of good cheer um uh and uh good vibes to you all out there uh be on the lookout for a little update episode uh after the uh christmas holiday before the end of the end of the year and uh with that i will take my leave uh have a great uh christmas you guys take care <laughs>